Hey, hey, welcome to the Wildcast. I just had such a fascinating conversation with someone I have a great deal of respect for, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Jason Weiner, who is a bioethicist. He has a doctorate in bioethics. He's an ordained rabbi. He's actually an assistant rabbi of a synagogue in Los Angeles. But his main work is to be a chaplain in a major hospital in LA where he is giving beautiful spiritual care to the elderly and answering some very, very difficult questions for people at the end of their lives. That's enough of a reason just to listen to this podcast. But the other thing we discussed um, at length was this whole idea of CRISPR gene editing. Do you know that they can now take embryos and edit out all of the bad genes so that we can create, I mean, God forbid, but a master race. Now, that's not the reason people want to do it. People want to do it to be able to remove terrible diseases. There's different types of gene editing going on. Sickle cell anemia has actually been removed, which is terribly affecting the African-American community for, for decades. They removed sickle cell anemia, but there's some downsides with removing it because that was also immunity to malaria. So it's quite complicated, but the ethics and morality of being able to create this new race, you know, the question is, but, you know, do you allow for that, which could be terrible, and it's therefore illegal in most countries. Somebody in China actually did it, was thrown in jail, believe it or not. On the other hand, it can save people's lives because you can literally minus and edit out genes that are harmful or deadly. So what do we do? And Rabbi Dr. Jason Weiner is really an expert on medical ethics from a Torah perspective, an ethicist and a bioethicist, really, really impressive guy. Take a listen. Last thing I want to mention also is that he donated a kidney, and I get into that with him as well. Take a listen. And of course, click here to subscribe. Okay, welcome to the Wildcast, and welcome my guest, Rabbi Dr. Jason Weiner. Thank you so much for being here. It is a great honor and pleasure to have you. Uh, for those unfamiliar with who you are and what you do, uh, tell us a little about your upbringing, your educational training, uh, Jewish and otherwise, and also interested, what inspired you to get involved in bioethics um, and spiritual care? within the health system. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you for your warm welcome. And it's an honor to be here with you. I've always been a big fan of you and your incredible work. Um, you know, I never expected to go into bioethics or chaplaincy for that matter. Um, I've always been interested in trying to help people and help make the world a better place, but I never knew exactly how that would manifest itself. Um, I had a little bit of a taste of chaplaincy a number of years ago. Uh, my first taste of it when I was living in New York and what I learned from that was that I did not want to become a chaplain. I didn't really <laughs> find it that meaningful or inspiring, and I didn't know what my role was. And then um, I was assistant rabbi at Young Israel Century City here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And the previous rabbi of Cedar sinai where I'm working now, Rabbi Levi Mayer, Oliver Shalom, um, had been the rabbi here for 30 years. He was a member of our shul, and unfortunately, he got sick. And um, my boss, Rabbi Muskin, kind of volunteered me, or voluntold me, I guess we could say, to, to help him out a little bit, you know, and fill in for him. And so I was sort of thrown into it. And um, I was anxious and nervous about it. I didn't really know what my role would be in the hospital, what I had to offer. But I fell in love with it right away. 
being on the front lines of life and death, encountering all kinds of people in challenging situations and trying to be able to, to help them. And so I, I then, you know, furthered my education, whether that was through CPE, clinical pastoral education, and then also getting a doctorate in clinical bioethics. So uh, I'm just curious, just listening to you tell your story, we'll get into some of the bioethics later, but it, does, does it get you down just being around all of that death and illness, hospitals, older people dealing with these kinds of issues? How, how do you handle that emotionally? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a very, it's a very good question. And in fact, um, Rabbi Mayer, when he was sick, he was sometimes doing a little bit better and he would come back to the hospital and I could ask him some questions. And my first question for him was, you know, how do you do this every day? Don't you find it depressing being around so many sick people, so much illness, death and suffering? His first answer to me, if, you, if you've been to Cedar sinai you'll, you'll, you'll get this. He said to me, what do you mean? This isn't a hospital. This is an art museum, which our hospital is. But it, then he said, you know, it's also a hospital. And he said to me a, a very profound answer. He said, um, you know, in most of life, the people you meet, they, they, say they're doing well if you ask someone on the street hey how's it going everyone says oh good how are you but in reality they might be you know suffering they just don't open it up in the hospital on the other hand you walk into a patient's room and say to them you know tell me about how things are going today what, what are you experiencing and within seconds people are opening up about their deepest secrets people are crying within minutes he said in most of the world people's bodies are healthy but their souls are not in the hospital you often find that people's bodies are sick but their souls are very healthy. Wow. And so you find it to be a very meaningful place. And then the opportunity to, to be able to help people and try to be there for them in these times, I find it actually very, very inspiring and, and very meaningful. You know, I had a little brush with this uh, myself years ago before I started MGE. I was the assistant rabbi on the east side at KJ, with Rabbi Lookstein, you should live and be well. And um, I was in this, I mean, I was one of the questions they at Rabbi Lookstein asked me on my interview are you a Kohen? Now, when you get that question on an interview, a rabbinic interview, you know you're going to be spending a lot of time in the cemetery. And um, I actually found it quite meaningful also. Um, I remember all of my lapels, not lapels, what do you call that, in the, my cuffs in my pants. Uh -huh. They all had some dirt from the, from the cemetery. And, and on, on the surface also, it was like, I'm just thinking back now, I actually found it quite meaningful, you know, being there for people at that, that, that difficult time. So yeah. Kalika vote to you because not everybody can handle that. And I'm sure you have to create a little distance between yourself and the people you're trying to help because, um, you know, it can take a toll. A little bit. I, I remember once I was in the elevator when I first started working here with a bunch of residents and they seemed like they were very shooken up. And I heard one resident saying to the other one, that's the last time I'll ever get close with a patient again. Another one said, oh, yeah, you can't get close with them. And I remember feeling so sad about that. And then mm -hmm. thankfully, the third one said to them, you know, but we're here to care for them. You know, we're, we're here to help. And I just that struggle was a struggle that I could relate to. And, you know, yeah. you, you, you have to have a distance, but you also have to really care and, and be there for people. Well, if you if you don't care, I assume it comes across and uh -huh. you can't really be as helpful to them. I would think you so. You know, um, what are some of the common challenges that you face? um as a rabbi and as a chaplain and um issues that maybe touch on some of the bioethics that you've been writing about you wrote a couple of books and a lot of scholarly articles um what, what do you struggle with there 
There's a lot. I mean, there's a broad range. Um, one of the big challenges we have, for example, and I've written about this is, you know, um, we have a lot of, it's usually end of life issues. That's the most common. And, and, and right. because we have so much technology and such amazing technology, whether it's respirators or ECMO machines or artificial hearts, all kinds of things that can be done to prolong people's lives. And usually prolonging life is a blessing. We, we all want to live as long as possible. There are situations when it's prolonging suffering, it's prolonging the dying process. Mm -hmm. We have to start asking ourselves, like, is this in the person's best interest? And sometimes, oftentimes, the patient themselves can no longer speak for themselves. So we're having to guess, like, we assume they want this, but is this really what's good for them? Do they, would they want this? If they could talk right now, would they tell us to keep going, keep pushing? These are some of the dilemmas that we, we really, really struggle with because, you know, we were trying to do what's best for people and we have so much power and with, you know, as they say, with great power comes great responsibility, right? So it's like, it's yeah. hard to choose the right, the right thing to do. And you have, I mean, I'm sure you have go-to rabbis, mentors, teachers, who, 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 who has been positive help influence in your work? Yeah, for, for me personally, I developed a long time ago a relationship with Rav Usher Weiss. He's the, oh, wow. the yeah. post-sec of Sharetzetic Medical Center in Yerushalayim and, and mm -hmm. very prominent post-sec. And um, he's come here to speak at our hospital a number of times. Oh, and wow. I always go to see him when I'm in Israel. And I found him to be um, very compassionate, also very um, aware of the medical issues, which is crucial. He knows what he's talking about and he he's he knows how to um explain things in a way that really makes sense and provide great guidance wow and and you've published these books um on bioethics the the most recent being care and covenant a jewish bioethic of responsibility uh, and in the book you argue that the torah can add tremendous wisdom and insights into the whole world of medicine can you Maybe give us a, an example or two, a little tease for the book. Sure, thanks. I, I'm, I'm constantly impressed at, about the wisdom of the Torah and the ability of the Torah to be relevant in our day and age. And to listen to people struggling with you know, their, their, their challenges that we have, the decisions that have to be made, and then to realize that like, wow, we have ancient guidance that you know we believe comes from god that provides us with an approach to these things so th there's so many different possible um examples mm -hmm. but uh, i mean the most common that come up are for example um the the death of rebbe huda hanasi when rebbe huda hanasi was dying when he was sick there was a woman who lived with just him. tell just tell everybody who this great rabbi was sure rebbe huda hanasi yeah. was the editor of the mishnah the um you know the leader of the jewish people and really the codifier of the oral tradition so he's one of the most profound and prominent rabbis we've ever had right and this is now going back over two thousand years um and he when he when he was dying there was a woman who lived with him she's referred to in the gemara as amsa de rabbi and she's she was a very wise woman she's quoted many times throughout the talmud and when he was dying um his students gathered around his house to pray for him to recover. And she also prayed for him to recover, but she was in the house and she was witnessing what he was going through. And um, at a certain point, she realized that recovery was not in his best interest. So she starts to pray for, for him, actually for God to take him. But she realized that the students' prayers were more powerful than hers because there was dozens of them outside praying intensely. So she goes to the rooftop and, and they were praying and they were praying for his, you know, for him to live, for, him to recover, for him to live. exactly. Yeah. Yes. 
And, but she realized that that was not in his best interest. So she goes to the rooftop behind them and she smashes a jug down to the ground and it explodes uh, with, with, with sound and it startled them. So they stopped praying. And in that moment that they stopped praying, she continued to pray that they should, that he should, God should take a soul. And God did take his soul, meaning she didn't kill him. God forbid, she wouldn't kill him. But she realized that there was a point at which we could allow natural death. And in fact, the rabbis provide us with very specific guidance in the, the Ramah, the, the codifier of the Shulchan Aruch, the Ashkenazi glosses on the code of Jewish law, gives us an example of someone who's dying slowly, but they're not dying. And there is a wood chopper outside their house chopping wood. So he says, you cannot move the body to make them die faster. You cannot even remove keys from, from under their head or the pillow from underneath their head to make them die faster. But you could tell the wood chopper to stop chopping the wood because that's external and that's allowing natural death, not causing it's it's withholding further treatment, but it's not withdrawing. And from these stories, there, there's many, many more. But just as an example, just excuse my ignorance, the chopping sure. of the wood. Yeah. Is what, what was it, it? The chopping the wood was somehow helping the person stay alive longer. Yeah. Somehow we don't totally understand how, but the rabbis right. assumed that the wood chopping, either the noise of the wood chopping or the rhythm, something about it was keeping the person alive and not allowing them to die. And so the big debate is like, well, what's the respirator? Is the respirator the pillow under the head or is it the wood chopper? You know, right. various right. interventions we debate. And, but we have sources for this, which is amazing because the rabbis probably could never have imagined the technology we have. But they gave us the principles by which we can make these decisions. Wow. And, and I'm curious in other, um, I mean, you're following Jewish tradition here. What do other chaplains, um, um, I mean, not everyone is a, a religious chaplain, I assume, in, in these hospitals. Right. Um, what, what are they following? Is there any kind of code of ethics? And is that changing? I, I heard a um, somebody speak was once at the Jewish center um, at a third meal and she was asked and she was very you know honest and transparent that the the principles are changing every 10 20 years as to how they handle because not everybody has you know a system that they follow like we do what what are the what do, what do other people do in your position that are not let's say religiously based yeah it's a good question they, they take an approach to ethics that they call the narrative approach which is, let me try to uncover the narrative of this person, who they are, what's meaningful to them, mm -hmm. what their goals and values and preferences are, and kind of try to figure out what's right for them. The, the problem is, that, as you've articulated, is that it's not always clear what's right for them. There's lots of difficult options. And I love the Jewish approach because it gives us specific principles. And one can feel a sense of like, I've been guided by my tradition, I've been guided by God, and it really mitigates a lot of the guilt and the anguish that people feel afterwards, because I feel like, you know what, I have specific guidance. So it's really helpful. Yeah, because I can imagine somebody in that kind of situation feeling awful about making the wrong decision because they're making it themselves, as opposed to basing it on some higher value that's beyond them. Right. So that's a, that's a tremendous tool that you have. Um, the journal, um, the Jewish journal, Valet of Los Angeles, published this amazing article on how you donated your kidney. So first, oh, first of all, Kolokovo too, that's incredible. Can you share that story? Sure. Um, I never expected to be a kidney donor, just like I never expected to be a chaplain. I mean, I guess these are life lessons, right? We, we end up places sometimes where we didn't expect to be. 
Um, but I, I mean, as we're discussing, you know, Jewish bioethics and things like that, I've always been interested in it. As you mentioned, I've written books about it. I, I speak about these topics and I've always praised organ donation as a beautiful mitzvah, a wonderful life-saving thing. Whenever people donate organs and are here in our hospital, I always go to visit them and praise them. And I always thought it was a good thing. I just personally never thought I, I would do it. I never expected to do it or really wanted to. Um, uh, then a friend of mine uh, here in Los Angeles needed a kidney and they did a drive, a uh, swabbing drive, renewal. The organization renewal did a swabbing drive to see if we could find a match. And I, I thought, you know, I'm always praising it and speaking about it. In fact, I helped renewal get into my hospital to help patients here. So I thought like I'm connected to them and I'm involved with this topic. I should go to show my support. And while I was there, you know, people lined up to swab and I, I wasn't going to swab and I sort of had to feel like, you know, a hypocrite. So I thought, okay, I'll, sw I'll, I'll swab. I, I, I was scared, but I just swabbed. Thankfully they found a match and it wasn't me. And, um, <laughs> that actually happened here at my hospital. I got to visit, you know, both the donor and the recipient and praise them again. And I was like, wow, this is a great mitzvah and it's beautiful. Um, and then two years later, I got a call from renewal. Um, <laughs> uh, right here in my office, I, I can remember the moment you said one of those life defining moments where I, I was shocked to find out that I was a match. And not only was I a match, but there's a woman in Canada who was ranked 100. What that means is that everyone gets a ranking based on their antibodies. So let's say someone's a 70. That means 70% of people will not be a match for them. Mm -hmm. She was a 100, meaning 100% of people will not match her. She had very oh unique antibodies. She'd been looking for three years and could not find anyone. And without it, she'll die. And they tell me, you know, it's amazing, but you're a perfect match. We didn't think oh. we'd find anyone. But no pressure, you know, there's no pressure oh, and you gosh. do what you think is right. But I felt like, wow, first of all, it's hard to say no when I've been praising. I believe in it. So I went through a whole process. You know, first I called my wife. Obviously, I called her first. I, I called her. We we're talking. I said, you know, by the way, um, I just found out that I'm a match for a kidney donor. Let's discuss tonight. She says, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is not an oh, by the way conversation. <laughs> like, we need to, This is a big deal. Um, and then I called her Russia Weiss. In fact, his first thing he said to me was, did you tell your wife yet? What does she say? You know, he said to me, um, you're not obligated by Jewish law, but it's a gewaltika schus, was the words he used in, in Yiddish. It's a great merit, a great mitzvah. And I decided to just go through the process. The process is you have to first find out, are you really a perfect match? You know, they just had the swabbing. They need to do a little bit more testing. So I thought, you know what, why not get a little more testing? Then they have to check you out physically. Are you really fit to be a donor to major surgery. So I thought I'll just go through the process and like, I don't have to decide right now. I right. can just kind of keep going through the process. Right. You might get bought, you might get knocked out for some other reason. Yeah, exactly. And they give you lots of opportunities, by the way, when I met with the surgeon, he says to me, you know, in my opinion, you're perfect, you're perfect candidate, but I'm willing to say you're not, it's just <laughs> me and you here right now. No one will know. So yeah. just let me know. I'll say, I, I don't accept him. And you can get out of it without anyone knowing, and you don't wow. have to feel bad. Wow. Of course, I would have felt bad personally, but no one would know. <laughs> and you, you, you knew the woman? I didn't know her. She was a Jewish woman in Canada, um, not an Orthodox woman, um, uh, 72 years old. So all these were factors that I, you know, I, I asked Ravasher Weiss when I called him. He said, this is life-saving. This is a beautiful thing. If you can do it, you know, it's, it's amazing. And I encourage you, but I will not tell you you're obligated. You do what you think, you know, if you, if you and your wife have to decide amongst yourselves, 
I spoke to a rabbi here in Los Angeles who said, you know, I think you'll always be proud of yourself if you do it. And I think you'll always deep down inside feel a little bit bad about yourself if you don't. And I think he was right in a way, because I think about it every day since then. It's become one of the most meaningful things. It's only been four months. Thank God I feel great. Oh, wow. Back to normal. Now I feel totally myself and I feel, I feel, it feels, it feels really good. Like I feel like I really put my kidney where my mouth is, so to speak, <laughs> lived up to my values. And, and I feel like I'm happy that I did it. It's a tremendous Kiddush Hashem, amazing sanctification of Hashem's name. And like, wow. Wow. Um, I actually read something very interesting that Orthodox Jews make up about 18% of the living uh, kidney donors in the United States, despite the fact that we're 0.2% of the population. Um, so you're, you're, you're in that statistic, you realize. Um, but um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you have to say about that? It's pretty interesting. It is an amazing thing. I mean, they're, they're, have been people who have, you know, accused Orthodox Jews of being insular or not caring about others or you're being selfish. And when we see the reality, we know if you live in an Orthodox community, you see the amount of chesed, of kindness, of giving, of, of embracing of people. And this is just a statistic that demonstrates that because, you know, we know that, you know, basically very few people donate a kidney to a stranger. But the idea is that um, we feel that like, this is family. We're not just donated to a stranger. Like we feel that we're part of the Jewish family. We want to help save a life. And the truth is renewal will help anyone who comes to them, Jewish or not. But there is a sense of, um, you know, caring for one's community that and goes beyond border boundaries of, you know, specifically Orthodox, as I mentioned before. Um, and this is a way that Orthodox Jews express their desire to give back and to help people yeah. and to save lives. Yeah, and, and it's important to know uh, the, the, the language of the study was living altruistic kidney donors, meaning these are not kidney donors that like, you know, of a brother or sister exactly. or something, you know, it, it's just like what you just did. Someone you don't, you don't even know. So 18% right. is pretty unbelievable, pretty unbelievable. Tell us a little about this CRISPR gene editing. Um, I, re I know little or nothing about this, but it seems something very, very interesting in the moral dilemma surrounding it. Tell us a little. Sure. Yeah. Um, so in, in my role in the hospital, you know, our hospital is an academic medical center, and I just find um, the things that are happening in the world of academic medicine and research and kind of anticipatory medicine, meaning what we're anticipating coming down the pike, just so fascinating that I oftentimes will attend the lectures or the rounds with um, the doctors here to find out what's what's happening. And one of the things I've been hearing about a lot lately, even though it's not in the news so much these days, but it's really, it's coming, is CRISPR gene editing, which is that um, this Dr. Jennifer Doudna in Berkeley discovered just in 2012, this is how new it is, that there are some bacteria in nature that the way they fight viruses is by learning the DNA codes of those viruses. And then when they're attacked by those viruses, they actually learn how to insert themselves into the DNA and cut up the DNA and remove the harmful parts of the DNA so that that virus no longer can harm the bacteria. It's really an amazing thing that's found in nature. Wow. And what she figured out was if there, if this happens in some bacteria in the world, it's rare, but it does happen. If we can harness the power of the way that bacteria functions, we can use it for all of our DNA. And now that we know the human genome, even though we don't know it as well as, you know, 
it actually is. I mean, there's a lot more to learn. We need to be humble about it. But now that we're learning about our genome and the function of our DNA, she realized if we can start cutting up our DNA and cutting and replacing, we can actually transform humanity. And it can be used for a lot of good because you can cure diseases that way. You can totally eliminate illnesses. And obviously there's a lot of risks because you can totally transform humanity. I mean, imagine militaries could start creating, you know, 10 feet people with bulletproof skin and x-ray vision who can, you know, you are crazy like soldiers and like kind of do all kinds yeah. of sort of things. I mean, it's really a big risk. Create a new race. Wow. Right. So interesting. It's happening at the same time that AI is exploding. Yes. You know, because um, this, this is really within the genome you said within our DNA, being able to manipulate, I mean, you could cure cancer. You could, I mean, it's yes. unbelievable. Right. At the same time, you could create a, uh, a superior race of a breed of people, which right. could be interest have some interesting ethical dilemmas. Is there any, um, I mean, how advanced is this? This is fairly recent, 2012. Well, it was fascinating is that it's invented in 2012 and there was already babies born that had been crispr which is not the technical Whoa. term, but in 2018. Now, the person who did that in China um, was in a rogue lab. He was actually put in jail for doing it. It's technically Whoa. illegal, but that just shows how fast it's moving, that in just those six, it's seven it's years. Illegal, it's illegal in the United States, too? Yeah, to, to do what's called germline gene editing. What we're doing already, commonly, is, is somatic gene line editing, which means adults. So like, for example, sickle cell anemia is basically cured now. Not everyone's aware I'm, of this. I'm just, but... by the way, if I look down, I'm taking notes. I just wrote sure. germline gene editing versus somatic line gene yeah. editing. Yeah. Okay. So the difference is that germline is when you take like an embryo or a sperm cell or something, you know, very early on and you actually change its DNA. And then when it's born, it's a different creature, so to speak. It, it can be totally, its DNA is changed and that's inherited by its offspring. So it's permanent. Somatic is where they can actually do like a dialysis type of procedure where one's blood is removed, edited, and then put it back in their body. And then it only impacts that person, not their offspring. So it's not as permanent. So sickle cell anemia is an example where that's basically been cured by gene editing. But what, as an example, just to use that example, just to show an, a taste of the ethical dilemmas, is that they discovered that sickle cell anemia, which is primarily experienced amongst people of African descent, it turns out that people who had sickle cell anemia also had immunity to uh, malaria. Now, malaria, so they cured sickle cell anemia, and now these people are not, no longer immune to malaria. Okay, you could say no big deal because they don't. Let's say they don't live in Africa anymore, or we have treatments for malaria. But what it goes to show you is that our genes function in multiple ways that we're not always aware of. So we start editing one gene, and we don't realize that it actually changed other aspects of us. So that just shows the risks involved with this. Well, well, just but getting getting off the medical part and onto the moral legal issue. Sure. I'm curious. So germline gene editing, where you take an embryo and you start changing the DNA, you're saying is illegal in most countries? Right now it's illegal because, I mean, and there's been an agreement amongst the researchers not to go that far because it's so risky. And, and, and by the way, like because it's so yeah. risky, it's so risky. Because of the example you gave of sickle cell anemia, because you get rid of one thing, but now now you lose the exactly. That's a minor else. example. I mean, imagine we start changing people, and then we we don't learn for fifty years in the ways in which this has totally undermined humanity. It's 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 we're not ready yet. The, the idea is that this is so new that it's too risky to start changing people's DNA. 
even though, if I'm going to just play devil's advocate, even yeah. though you're saying sickle cell anemia has been cured because of this? Yeah. This is so now even the though I'm, that's the treatment for it. Yeah. But it's, it's new, not, it's, but, it's... but it's not done, in other words, to remove sickle cell anemia. It's not being done like in a somatic way, like, you know, editing once the person is alive and only affects them, not their offspring. The only way to do that is through the germline gene editing. You're no, in sickle cell anemia, it's being done for adults. That is somatic. That's why oh, it's been approved. Oh, 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 That's why oh, it's happening. Oh. Okay, I understand. Yeah, if they well, wanted what, to what? prevent one's offspring from having sickle cell anemia and to completely eliminate it, they would have to do that with germline gene editing, uh, which is not happening uh, yet, even though it could be. They have the technology. Is there a disease today that can be healed, rectified, removed through germline gene editing and not through somatic line gene editing? Yeah, a, a lot. I mean, most diseases. In fact, those babies that were born in China that were edited, they were edited to become immune to HIV. The, yeah. the researcher felt that the best way he could get participants was he would tell people who are married with HIV, which apparently there's a community of them in China that are very ostracized. He said, if you want to have children who are healthy, come to my lab. He didn't tell them how he was going to do it. And then he told them in the lab and three people went through with it. And now they are immune to HIV because he's changed them at the cellular level. I mean, that's hard to argue that that it's immoral. Right. And this Dr. Doudna, by the way, she says that at her lectures, people line up, even when they're not public lectures. And she has people lining up, begging to her, crying to her, saying that we have inherited diseases in our family. We want to have children. We know that you have the tools to cure our family and all of humanity of these illnesses. Please cure us. And she has to find a way to say, I, I want to and I want to help, but we're not ready yet. It's how, how too risky right about, now. How, how, how do you feel about this? I, I agree like? on the one hand. And in fact, I'll tell you what Professor Weiss told me because it was a fascinating response he told me. I, I think on the one hand, you know, we have the example of um, King Hezekiah, Chizkiah HaMelech. In the, he, the rabbis say that he had a book called Sefer Refuot. He had a book of cures. The book had all the cures, the herbs and everything, that every illness you could be cured. And he realized people were not praying to Hashem anymore because they had this book of healing. And he actually um, got rid of it. He hid it away. And the rabbis praised him for it because he said, you know what? Sometimes just because you can do something does not mean that you should do something, right? right? There's risks. And that was an unintended consequence, even though he could still cure them. He just felt that they, they, they lost the humility. And, you know, um, on the and it, there's this risk of like, how fast should we be mm-hmm. developing? And so on the one hand, I mean, we talked about organ donation. The first rabbis that wrote about this in the 1960s, there were some great rabbis that wrote about this. They were talking um, about what, what I did, what, about living kidney donation, and they discouraged it. They didn't say it's forbidden, but they discouraged it because they said, you know, we're not sure yet. We've heard of right. people who have died as a result, and it was the 60s. It was brand new. Right. Then in the 80s, rabbis started writing, you know, actually, we see now it's working. It's helpful. People are living and it's saving lives, so it's good. And then, and then more recent years, it became not just good, became like a great mitzvah. And so it took time. And um, so you see that there's like a value in kind of gradually, we want to improve, we want to embrace technology. But the question is how quickly? I asked Ravasher Weiss just a few weeks ago, I asked him, what do you think? How fast should we be advancing? He said, I think we should be advancing when the goal is to save lives, we should advance as quickly as possible 
which I thought was a fascinating answer. Not all rabbis would say that. Some would say, you know, be very, very cautious. He said as quickly as possible, but like an ambulance driver. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. If someone's driving an ambulance, you, you hear that someone had a heart attack, God forbid, or, you know, 10 blocks away. You're driving the ambulance. You want to get there as fast as possible to save their life. They're waiting for you. On the other hand, if you just drive recklessly on the wrong side of the road, on the sidewalk, whatever, you're going to crash and you're not going to make it there. So he said, you have to go as quickly as possible, but with caution, with enough caution to make sure you don't crash along the way. You know, if, if um, CRISPR gene editing is the, you know, the cure of the future, the, the intervention of the future, which it, it might be, if we start doing it right now and then things start happening, that people are suffering as a result because we made mistakes as we went too quickly, everyone's going to say, oh, well, this is, this is crazy. This is horrible. We have to stop it. So it's, we're probably better off in the long run if we move forward cautiously than if we rush into it and cause all kinds of unintended consequences and especially allow yeah. bad actors, so to speak, to misuse it and abuse it. Wow. Wow. That's, that's, that's massive. Um, if, if anyone listening to this wants to do more reading on this, uh, what, what, what do you recommend? Well, on CRISPR, there's a great book called Codebreaker by Walter Isaacson, which tells the whole story of Dr. Doudna and also the, a lot of the ethical issues. There's not a lot being written uh, in Jewish sources yet, though. I have an article coming out on the topic in the coming months, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. that's a great book um, in, in English uh, from a secular perspective, if you want to understand the topic. Now, you often quote um, the book. Tell me if I'm mentioning the name of the author properly. Toby Ord. Oh, yes. OK. Uh, it's called The Precipice, Existential Risk in the Future of Humanity. What in your mind? Um, I mean, we just talked about crisping or whatever the, the, yeah. the word that you just used. Is that the most pressing risk today for humanity? Um, or is there, is there anything else just we're, we're starting to get to the conclusion here, but I'm just curious, anything else that's like out there, that's really troubling you. That's a big yeah. issue. You're, <laughs> well, so Toby Ord wrote this book in 2019 where he, he wrote this book about what he thinks are the four biggest risks of humanity. He says they are climate change, nuclear war, mm -hmm. pandemics, and AI. And just keep in mind, he wrote that in 2019. So, mm -hmm. um, he, he was pretty much right on, but what he wrote what, what I found so fascinating and relevant was that he argues that human civilization, and he's not, he's not um, Jewish, he's an, he's an ethicist, you know, a thinker, mm -hmm. he writes, human civilization is about 5,000 years old. And he writes, human, humanity as a species could live for, you know, many, many hundreds of thousands of years, potentially. So if you think about it, if that's true, then in the life cycle of humanity, we are currently, let's say, in the adolescent phase so to speak, mm -hmm. where that's the age at which a human, you know, let's say 12 years old or so, where a human starts to get sort of like the physical maturity and appetite for risk to do all kinds of damage, right? To do horrible things to other people or to get pregnant or do all kinds of things, but they don't yet have the maturity to really make the best decisions that are the, in their best interest or the best for humanity. And so we set up society to protect adolescents because we have parents and schools and police and laws. But he says, what are we going to do as humanity? If we are now adolescents, so to speak, we now have all kinds of power, but who's, who's telling us, you know, what are the limits? Who's controlling us? Where's our wisdom? And my argument, he doesn't answer the question. My argument is that really that's what the role of the Jewish people is supposed to be. That's what it ultimately mm -hmm. means to be the chosen people. That's what it means to be the Orla Goyim, right? The light into the nations. 
that we are supposed to be um, sharing Jewish wisdom and Jewish insights with humanity, how do we interact with this incredible technology that we have, whether it's AI or CRISPR or other life prolonging techniques? Because we have to think about these things. They're complicated and they are powerful. And if we don't think about it, we just try to show off our power. We're going to be in a lot of trouble. And do, so do you think we should be getting behind Elon Musk, who is pushing for some regulation when it comes to AI? I mean, it's so interesting. I was listening to an interview uh, and he's like he seems like such a risk taker and such a bold, you know, kind of mover just buys Twitter because he's upset about the way it's going. And like he's, you know, he's trying to make the world run on electric cars. Um, but yet he's like he thinks we're not putting enough regulation on AI. Um, and, and do you think that is that the role of government? Because, you know, a lot of people would argue, you know, this is a moral uh, question, maybe even a religious, spiritual question. I don't want the government telling me what to do or what not to do. Um, you know, if there's a if, if there's a way to crisp out to gene edit some bad gene, I you know, I'm not so concerned with all those those ethics you rabbis are, you know, it's my own personal decision. But, you know, don't tell me what to do. Um, how, how would you react to that? Do, do you think the government should be involved in that? You know, um, it's a little of a separation church and state right. kind of question. Right. The government should be involved, but in totally prohibiting, there's another big risk, which is that when we just say no, we just push people to go other places. So if America yeah. says you can't do it here, it's illegal. So people just go to some islands and then there's no restrictions whatsoever. Right. When we push them away, we actually might might cause even worse extremes. And so yeah, I that's think what that happened, by the way. That's what happened with organ donation. Yes. Um, here, even here in the United States, you know, people are tired of waiting on these long lists. So there, there's a black market for organs. Right. And then you, you can have, uh, you know, unhealthy surgeries and, you know, with about the proper precautions being taken as, as a result. So that's an interesting right. question. Right, IVF as well. It was at first prohibited, so people just went elsewhere. Yeah. And and so like the role of religion, I think, is to provide like kind of a, that influence, not to force people, but to provide a kind of moral guidance. Like we had a Chris, we had a we had a conference here at my hospital about CRISPR, and I actually asked to be put on the agenda to speak. Normally, I don't like beg to speak places, but I said I want to give a keynote speech about the ethics and the morals here because. Do you have anyone speaking about ethics? You have all these speakers about what we can do with the technology. There needs to be an ethicist at the table, and in my opinion, religious ethicists, right? Religion needs a seat at the table. And so it's crucial because the government can't just forbid everything. That, that's not necessarily the solution. But you think the government should forbid some things because left to people's own devices? You know, we have the same area in economics. We know that according to halakha, there is a cap on how much you can charge, how much you can, I think up to like a sixth or something like that of the product, you're not permitted. You know, so we, in, in Judaism does sort of believe in regulation, but some people, you know, who are, you know, strict Adam Smith capitalists, you know, think it's like socialism to do that. Right. The challenge is finding the balance. I think there, sh there needs to be some kind of government regulations, some guidelines it just can't be an outright prohibition because then that just leads to, you know, people going around the system. But the, the challenge is for our wisdom to catch up with our powers. Right. So like, I do mm. agree that our, our our ability to control the world and to accomplish things with AI, as an example, has outstripped our wisdom right now. And so there, there, and we it, need to catch it, up. 
I'm writing that down, wisdom catching up with our powers. Is it just wisdom, though, or is it also really morality? Because, listen, Germany, before the Second World War, University of Berlin was like the Harvard of, of Europe. Uh, the greatest intellectuals and writers and scientists, Albert Einstein or Solveitschik, Zechatzal Gerecha, went mm -hmm. to Berlin to study. That was like the height of, quote-unquote, technology and wisdom. Well, But, you know... <laughs> Maybe intellect. I don't think intellect is the same thing as wisdom. You know, mm -hmm. wisdom is really a deeper understanding and appreciation for humanity and and why we do what we do and what's appropriate. And that's why I think religion is so crucial for wisdom. We, we, we knowing facts and information is not wisdom, right? Wisdom is much deeper and much more profound. Right. You're 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 including spiritual guidance and really ethics, morality within that term within wisdom. Definitely. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is a um, on what you're doing because we need voices and, and we need Thank Jewish you. voices to be able to express what our, you know, unique wisdom is on these issues. And I love what you said before, Jason, that how, how we have a system, we have passages in the Talmud and, and wisdom going back thousands of years to reflect right. God's approach to these life questions. I've always said this, that you know, if it's a question of life or death, we have to go to the creator of life mm. to be able to know how to navigate this and not simply shoot from the hip, which unfortunately um, happens in, in, in hospitals. I've been involved in that myself. Yeah. So I congratulate you for devoting your life to this and really synthesizing, uh, you know, a scholarship on bioethics with healthcare um, and spiritual guidance as a rabbi. So, um, well, I, I can't think of Thank anything you. more significant and more important to be involved in. I appreciate it um, very much. Thank you. Yeah. Hashem should continue to bless you with, uh, with wisdom <laughs> to Amen. be able to, to help shape these incredible forces of technology um, so that they can be used for the betterment of, of mankind, which is what they're for, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank God we have such a great tradition and we have great rabbis to lead us and guide us and uh, hopefully should bring us to, you know, better days. If anybody wants to um, follow you a little more besides getting any one of your books, um, just so you know, Rabbi Weiner is also the rabbi of Knesset Israel Synagogue of Beverly Wood. Um, you're a busy man. And he wrote three books, Care and Covenant, Jewish Bioethic of Responsibility, Jewish Guide to Practical Medical Decision Making and a guide to observance of Jewish law in a hospital. Um, that was uh, published by our good friend, Alec uh, Goldstein, who brought us together, yeah. Kodesh Press. Um, so anybody wants to get any of um, Rabbi Dr. Weiner's books, check out his articles. Uh, if you have questions, you can, you can how can people follow you there? Well, I have a website, rabbiweiner.com, and I'm on okay. social media. Because I know that, unfortunately, I don't want to have waves of people calling you, but this, unfortunately, is a real life situation, end of life care and issues like that. And very few yeah. people have rabbis that go to on these things. Well, I'm more than happy so, to help uh, in any way that I can for anyone. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. And thank you for your time. Thanks for coming on the Wildcast. This is awesome. Thank you for all that you do. You it's go. my pleasure. <clears throat> strength to strength.